0: Welcome to the Defend the House podcast, an NFL guide to team building. I'm Mason LeBeau, and we're here with our first general manager evaluation, so I'm very excited for this. If you caught last week's episode, a 2010 Stafford-era Lions retrospective, you may have caught a glimpse of what I'm going to be doing here today when I gave a short review of general manager Martin Mayhew. Well, now we're going to be doing that on a much larger scale. Today we'll be looking at the trends, tendencies, and decision-making of San Francisco 49ers general manager John Lynch. I wanted to start here for a few reasons. A, because this is an early and ongoing evaluation, so I wanted to start with someone with a little less history behind everything they've done so I could test the waters and how I wanted to structure this whole thing, the whole podcast, which will continue to be tweaked over time. And B, I work with and follow a lot of 49ers fans. So personally, I'm not a fan of the team, but I knew I could get a lot of good information from the people I talked to online, which I did. So if you aren't familiar with the structure of how this podcast will work, I'll be narrating all the information I found and then cutting the interview throughout the episode when it's relevant, which is another reason why I'm really excited for this episode because I got another great guest. This week, I talked to the host of the fourth and gold podcast, Javier Vega. You know, background check on you. How long is your 49ers fandom go? Uh... <laughs> The
1: background check, I like how you put that. Um, <laughs> it goes back to, I want to say, seven, eight years old. I grew up in Pennsylvania, so I was around a lot of Eagles fans as a young kid. And uh, my brother's an Eagles fan. My dad's a Bears fan, so we have a house divided during the regular season. We're just during football season, period, you know. Um, but most of my 49ers fandom came from my cousins, who are really, really big Jerry Rice fans. And they're both about six or seven years older than me. So, you know, they got to see... You know the Super Bowls in the '80s and and those things like that because I was born '86, so they were, they're yeah they're they're actually probably like ten eleven years older than me. So yeah, they they remember the the Joe Montana's all four of those, and then I really started to pick up on the Niners once the Niners had Ricky Waters on the team, Um and you know I just kind of stuck with it because I just really liked Ricky Waters for the most part, Um and then I remember vividly the the Super Bowl. Um, you know, as like an eight or nine, seven or eight year old kid, I, I remember the Super Bowl. I remember watching with my dad. I remember my cousins being over. I just remember the environment that's been, so I've been an Irish fan since
0: about seven or eight. I do want to explain that this pod has been in the works for a while. So this interview was recorded even before the draft. So there are some things I mostly cut out, but you may hear about which quarterback they're going to take or if a Trent Williams extension would get done, which as we now know, it did get done and they took Trey Lance. I also felt this was a really good time to look at the Lynn Shanahan era because this offseason was really important and serves as like a really good fulcrum between the beginning of this regime and the next part. They rebuilt the team to their style. They lost a lot. They got their quarterback, made a Super Bowl, and then lost some more after that. And now they have invested a lot into what they expect to be the quarterback of the future. So we'll certainly see how that part goes going on into the future. But for now, we're going to look at the start of this new era. Lastly, I know John Lynch doesn't make every decision, and he certainly doesn't make every decision by himself. We don't know the true power structure of that front office. For all we know, Adam Peters has a ton of pull, maybe the most pull. We certainly do know that Kyle Shanahan has a ton of influence himself. We just don't know exactly how much. But for simplicity's sake, we'll be referring to this as Lynch's team as he is in the top position of the front office. So let's get into it. The Inheritance. To understand the team and the decision Shanahan and Lynch made, we need to rewind just a bit. The 2012 49ers nearly completed an amazing halftime comeback in Super Bowl 47 against the Ravens, but just came up short. Just in the second year under general manager Trent Baalke and head coach Jim Harbaugh, San Fran looked like they could be perennial contenders. They had nine all-pro players on this team and plenty of other good contributors. Stacked on both sides of the ball, they were aided with a breakout year from quarterback Colin Kaepernick, so this team was ready to roll. And they were so close to that championship in 2013, looking just as good at 12-4, but losing a heartbreaker in the NFC Championship game to the rival Seahawks. The 49ers were ready to run it back in 2014, but the NFL moves pretty quickly. And they went from a contender to middle of the pack very quickly. Their stud linebacking core of Navarro Bowman and Patrick Willis were both out most of the season. And alongside that, the team was mostly hindered by infighting from their leadership. Head coach Jim Harbaugh did not get along with Trent Baalke or owner Jed York, despite the previous success, so after an 8-8 season, Harbaugh parted from the team as well. Following Harbaugh, there would be an exodus of quality players leaving the team as well. Linebacker Patrick Willis had a toe injury that just wasn't quite healing right, and he would retire just eight years into his career. Defensive lineman Justin Smith, who was just as consistent as anybody, would retire as well after just 14 seasons and five All-Pro teams. Extremely promising young pass rusher Alden Smith, who the 49ers took 7th overall in 2011, had 44 sacks in 4 years, but couldn't stay out of trouble. He served a 9-game suspension to start 2014, but going into the training camp of the next year he'd be arrested for his 3rd DUI, resulting in his subsequent release. Even linebacker Chris Borland, who was drafted in the 3rd round the year prior, who flashed as a rookie and looked like he could possibly replace Patrick Willis long-term, retired after just one season, citing concussion concerns. Several others would be released, traded, or just retire as well. And suddenly the 2015 49ers resembled nothing of the impressive 2013 team. Jim Tomsula would be promoted to coach this new team, but would be fired at the end of the 5-11 year. Which gets us to the year of inheritance, 2016. Obviously the 49ers weren't going to be able to fix all their problems in one offseason, and they didn't. So 2015 was something of a wash, but it got much worse before it got better. For 2016, they would bring in Chip Kelly. Off his tumultuous Eagle stint, the 49ers gave him a year to potentially recreate his prominent college offense for them. He didn't. At little fault of his own, but though based off his previous stop, he likely didn't help. The 49ers would take another step back, finishing just 2-14. The offense didn't improve, finishing 27th in the league. The defense that made them such strong contenders all those years back has disintegrated into the league's worst unit. 32nd, setting a record for allowing seven consecutive 100-yard rushing games against themselves. Not only would Chep Kelly be fired, but finally Trent Baalke as well. Based off what you remember, what can you recall about that 2016 team? What pieces ended up being there for the long term of this rebuild?
1: I think the thing I remember most about the 2016 team is the fact they won that pointless game at the end of the year against the Rams. I also remember going to the week one home opener, Monday Night Football against the Rams uh, with my buddy Fernando. So we were there, and, you know, when you win a game 28 to nothing with the roster that was there, you're like, okay, wait, maybe Chip Kelly has something here. Um, but that wasn't the case. So, you know, you, you leave that game excited, and then the rest of the season just falls apart. You know, the Niners go 2-14 and 14 to finish out that year. And, you know, a lot of fans aren't going to like me for this, but sometimes it's better just to lose a game late in the season, especially... In the Niners case, you know, you, you you go from picking you you end up picking second before they make the trade with Chicago. You pick you're picking second. If you lose that game to the Rams at the end of the year, you're picking first and you don't have to make a decision. It's Miles Garrett at one. You don't have to worry about, oh, is it Solomon Thomas? Is it Jamal Adams? What do we do at quarterback? You know, you would have had a much better um it was just a terrible, terrible season. I think they had they had they had they had allowed a hundred a yard rusher in like all sixteen games. It was just it was miserable, and you you saw flashes though of some really good players. DeForest Buckner was one that stuck out. You are like, okay, that guy's a player. Armstead played okay in the games that he was there. I thought Tart and Eric Reed played okay. Jimmy Ward had some good games. I thought um, you know Jeremy Curley was the bright spot. Carlos Hyde was a bright spot. Of course, Trent Brown and Joe Staley were were pretty good players at that time. Um, but overall, just. The team was just bad as a collective team. Individually have some good individual performances, but man, that was a rough, (laughs) rough season.
0: So what do the next guys inherit in terms of talent? Starting at quarterback, they'd be starting over. Colin Kaepernick has been here throughout this entire mess, and his performance generally mirrored that of the team's record. Obviously, there's a lot more than just the on-field stuff with Cap, but I'm not here to go into that. Regardless of the situation, it was probably fair for the 49ers to move on anyway. Backups Blaine Gabbert and Christian Ponder, who were the 10th and 12th overall picks of the 2011 draft, obviously weren't the answer by this point either. Offensively, other than that, left tackle Joe Staley did stay throughout the previous year's mess, and right tackle Trent Brown has broken out from a 7th-round depth player to a good starting tackle. The previous regime also signed free agent guard Zane Beatles and spent a first-round pick on another guard, Joshua Garnett. In hindsight, we know neither guard worked out well, and even Brown would later be traded. But without hindsight, the offensive line was the perceived strength of the offense. Mostly because wide receiver wasn't. The leading wide receiver, Jeremy Curley, who was actually one of my favorite role players during this time, wasn't much more than a third option throughout his career, let alone a leading one. Funny enough, running back Raheem Mostert was a part of this team, though you wouldn't know it at the time. He had spent his rookie year in 2015 on four different teams, and in 2016, he'd continue to bounce around the league, he just happened to finish with the 49ers. He wasn't a selling point at the time for the next coach, but he'd be an important player going forward. Defensively, this group was the literal worst, so there wasn't a lot. A few guys did stick around, safety Jaquiski Tart, cornerback Jimmy Ward, and previous year's first-round pick Eric Armstead are about it. All starter-worthy, certainly, but not quite game-breakers. However, the Kelly regime did leave one last gift for the next guys in defensive tackle DeForest Buckner, who was their other first-round pick and made the all-rookie team even on a struggling defense. So to recap, going into the Shanahan-Lynch era, there were perceived strengths in the trenches, though neither were complete, but talented. They needed weapons on offense, cover guys on defense, they had to replace an excellent duo at linebacker, and above all else, they needed a quarterback. 2017 The 49ers took an unconventional route this offseason looking for new leadership. Wanting to take advantage of being early in the coaching search, they more or less hired Kyle Shanahan, the coach, before John Lynch, the general manager. This isn't technically how this worked out, as Shanahan made a Super Bowl run with the Falcons and couldn't be hired until after, but he was the grand prize. It was John Lynch that was kind of the surprise hire here. To this point, he had a long Hall of Fame career at safety, spent about another decade working in the broadcast booth, and then was suddenly named the top ranking official within a front office. It's a strange path to the job, which leads to a lot of questions that we'll likely never know the answer to. Bahavi was similarly whelmed by the hire. So at the current moment, in 2021, do you wish they had gone for a more experienced general manager hire? Or so far are you glad they kinda went with a more experimental move in John Lynch?
1: I kinda wanted Chris Ballard. Um so yeah, I think I yeah, I think I think the Niners would have would Have been better with a Chris Ballard as opposed to John Lewis. No, not, not, I'm not going to take anything away from John because you know they've gotten to a Super Bowl, they've built up a really strong roster. But I, I think, I think Ballard, you know, is a guy who is going to, I hate using baseball references, but he's going to, he's going to swing for doubles. He's not trying to hit the home run, he's just trying to take the safe pick, he's trying to take the smart pick. And then, you know, later on in the draft, he'll take a couple shots here and there to, you know, just high upside type guys. And it's worked out for him. Whereas with the 49ers, I think they overthought it initially. You know, they wanted to change the culture of the team. We had seen all the arrests. We've seen how bad the team was as, as you know, just collectively is pretty toxic. You know, just the overall, you know, the lack of experience is kind of concerning. And you have a you have a first-time head coach, a, a guy who didn't scout at all, has no scouting experience. Um, I think he was smart to add Martin Mayhew, add in Adam Peters to kind of help him. Um but that initial draft was just like, yep, that's an inexperienced guy making these selections, and it was concerning. Um, but looking back at it, you're like, okay, wow, these are some really big misses. And it showed the inexperience at the time.
0: Getting into their first offseason, on the surface, doesn't look that good. Their free agency was highlighted by four big signings. Defensive tackle Earl Mitchell at four years, $16 million. Wide receiver Pierre Garcon at five years, $47 million fullback Kyle Juszczyk at 4 years, $21 million, and linebacker Malcolm Smith at 5 years, $26 million. Smaller value signings did include wide receiver Marquise Goodwin, kicker Robbie Gold, and cornerback Kwan Williams, all of which did stick around for a while and were quality gets. But of the major signings, only Juszczyk stuck around and made an impact. As a non-fan, I didn't give them much benefit of doubt looking over this, and this is why I think it's important to interview a fan, especially a smart fan like Javi, who provides important context.
1: You know, I guess if you hit on two of your, whatever it is, six signings, I think you're doing okay, especially if they're on a team five years later. So you, you did fine with those. But the Pierre Garçon one kind of hurt him pretty bad because he ends up breaking his neck in that 2017 season. and He doesn't really return um, to form ever again after that. So that that was just really bad. You know, so that, that 2017 offseason, I, I think they, they made some smart signings. I understood why. You know, that that team was so bad, and the culture was so bad. No one wanted to play for Jed York, Trent Baalke. Now, Trent is out of the building, but they also fired a couple other people. Um, so they had to they had to overpay, and I understood that.
0: I think it's easier to be looking at these moves on paper with hindsight and say, yeah, bad signings. But the perspective is important. No one was going to San Francisco at the time without a bonus. So getting warm bodies to change things around and implement the new team's culture may have carried more impact than their actual play did. It also goes to show how much luck comes into play. Pierre Garçon would have filled that wide receiver role that they desperately needed perfectly. That signing made sense. To this point, he had missed eight total games over the past six seasons. After signing with the 49ers, he'd get hurt and only play 16 games over the next two years. That's not something you can foresee. The draft is a little harder to defend. In their first draft, they'd trade back one spot to third overall for defensive end Solomon Thomas, and then trade back up into the first round for linebacker Ruben Foster. Furthermore, they'd add cornerback Akella Witherspoon, quarterback C.J. Bethard, and running back Joe Williams in the first four rounds, as the saving grace of this draft came at pick 146 when the 49ers selected Iowa tight end George Kittle.
1: And then, you know, with the 2017 draft, uh, man, initially I was excited because I really liked Ruben Foster and Akella Witherspoon. Um I'm I was a big, big on t- Witherspoon too. So yeah. And I I I still am a big fan of Witherspoon. Whatever has happened with the 49ers and him, who knows? Um the CJ Beathard thing threw me for a loop. I'm a Big Ten fan first. I'm a Penn State guy, and I've seen CJ Beathard play football in the Big Ten. There was nothing impressive about him. And I and I, I kind of understood what he was doing, and I understood this guy was just gonna be a backup, career backup for the Niners. I never thought he would gonna be the next Kirk Cousins as a long term starter. Um, that's not what he was selected for. I think the plan initially was to go ahead and go ahead and get Kirk Cousins in 2018. Have CJ there just to kind of, you know, learn from from Kirk. And obviously that didn't pan out, as we all know. Um, the George Kittle one, again, I watched a lot of Big Ten football. I It wasn't a head-scratcher, but it made a lot of sense. He was climbing up boards, and I remember him and O.J. Howard had very similar combines. I'm like, okay, this is a really good value pick. I liked it. I thought they had at least four... Or potential future guys, you know, and the Solomon Thomas one, I, I didn't like it at the time. I was all about Jamal Adams or Derek Barnett or, you know, go take, go take, go take Deshaun Watson. Like I'm still on that. Like you should have took the quarterback. I understand when you take a quarterback, you kind of start your timer on your uh, coaching tenure. Uh, but I believe that I believed enough in Kyle Shanahan that it would make a lot of sense to take a quarterback especially in that spot, but I understood why they didn't. You can understand the plan to go get Kirk Cousins and Kyle. Most, Kyle recently admitted to that. That was the plan, I mean, they can do that now. You can say it after the fact that that was the plan. Um, so, you know, they they this was a draft of a first-time head coach and a first-time general manager, and it showed, and, you know, we see it now five years later, that they're kind of still paying for that draft.
0: Yeah, this draft didn't quite stack the 49ers' roster early like they had hoped. Running back Joe Williams never ended up playing a game. Solomon Thomas wasn't a terrible player, but with only six career sacks and walking after his rookie deal, he didn't come close to returning the value of the number three overall pick. Reuben Foster certainly flashed his potential, but only ended up playing 16 games for the 49ers and being more of a headache than he was worth. Akella Witherspoon also flashed. He had great upside, but he had trouble staying on the field and getting healthy, and he couldn't quite put it all together. Getting a blue chip talent salvages this draft from being a bad one, and they did get guys who would contribute to the 2019 Super Bowl run, but ultimately, were not impactful enough to say this draft was really worth it. The biggest move, however, didn't come in that offseason. It's fair to say that Lynch and Shanahan spent free agency and the draft getting players to fit their scheme and remaking the team in their image, but after an 0-9 start to begin the 2017 season, they had to make a move to do something now. So in Halloween of that season, San Francisco traded a second-round pick for Patriots backup quarterback Jimmy Garoppolo. The Patriots side of that story is really interesting, too, having to choose between a 40-year-old Tom Brady who was still playing well and a young Garoppolo who they had been grooming to be the replacement for the past four years but was due a new contract after the season. The Patriots ultimately stuck with Tom Brady, and the 49ers would get Jimmy Garoppolo. Yes. Do you remember what your initial reaction was to that trade, if it was skepticism, if it was cautious optimism, or even maybe excitement? My initial
1: reaction was to call my current Fourth and Gold podcast host, Fernando. Um, I called him immediately because him and I had spoken, I want to say, maybe a week prior about the Niners looking at a quarterback in this draft, the upcoming draft, and how much we liked Jimmy Garoppolo because he was going to be a free agent, and that would be a guy to go after because I was not in on Kirk Cousins. You know, I, was, I wasn't I was my guy. So I called him up. I mean, he, You know, you can ask him to this day. I called him like, yo, we got Jimmy, we got Jimmy. And he's like, What? I'm like, yeah, Jimmy Garoppolo. And I was excited about it. And I was like, okay, now we're we're now we're talking because, you know, you you get excited with Jimmy Garoppolo at the time because he had those two starts in New England and he looked great and it worked and it was, you know, it it, it was something that was like, okay, here we go, Kyle. This is this is a guy you could probably build around. Um guy you can probably win
0: with. Now, sending a second round pick doesn't require a super strong commitment if you think you could potentially upgrade the next year. However, a decision would have to come soon because of that aforementioned contract. Jimmy G would prove his worth, and the games he would start from Weeks 13 onward, the 49ers went 5-0, suggesting that a capable quarterback in a Shanahan scheme would work wonders. So John Lynch re-signed him to a five-year, $137 million contract, which at the time was the largest contract in NFL history in annual payment. On the surface, pretty risky for a guy who is going into his fifth season with just seven career starts. However, this is where I give Lynch and company a lot of credit, because it was a wonderfully structured deal for them. A lot of that money was front-loaded, when they were already committed to giving Jimmy G a season or two anyway. Had he not panned out, they would have just been able to get off that contract relatively easily. But at the time, it made a lot of sense to assume that after an offseason to keep learning the playbook with improvements to the offense, that the contract nor his play would be an issue. But before we look into what happens in 2018, we have to look to see how Shanahan and Lynch attacked the upcoming offseason. 2018 it makes sense to be aggressive this year in terms of changing the culture 2017 was a success and the way they ended put a lot of hype going into 2018 so they re-sign a handful of depth guys but because they still have a ton of cap even after the jimmy garoppolo deal they're aggressive in free agency which was highlighted by three big signings the first cornerback richard sherman formerly of rival seattle they signed him to three years 27 million with only three million guaranteed This was an excellent contract in both hindsight and even to today for San Francisco. However, it wasn't that crazy at the time because he was a risk. In 2017, Sherman ruptured his Achilles halfway through the season. An absolutely brutal injury that you're not sure if you can ever come back from 100%, especially at his age. Well, he would eventually be an all-pro in 2019, so he did come back. At the time, Sherman was still getting a decent payday if he could get healthy, but the 49ers weren't on the hook for long if he couldn't. In the end, he played out his contract. The other two signings would be running back Jarek McKinnon, four years, thirty million, eighteen guaranteed, and center Weston Richburg, five years, 47.5 million, 28 guaranteed.
1: The Richard Sherman one, I was excited about. The reason I was excited about it was his influence on Akello Witherspoon. That was my initial thought. That was that was my thought the entire time. You know, you look at Akello. He, I, to me, he was a stronger, faster version of of Richard Sherman. And Sherman could teach him. Um, the Weston-Richburg one, I understood, uh, based on just some film study. You know, he, he he the Niners got that one correct. Like, out of all their free-in signings, that was the one that was correct. The problem is he couldn't stay healthy. Like, from a talent perspective and scheme fit, Weston-Richburg would have been Alex Mack all over again had he stayed healthy. And when he was playing, we saw how well he was playing with the 49ers. Um the, the Jarrett McKinnon one, it's like, come on,
0: Kyle. On to the draft, and there's some similarities to the 17 class here. They would win a coin flip with Oakland, which would net them the ninth pick in the order, and in the first, they would take offensive tackle Mike McGlinchey. It's worth noting that they went right tackle high in the draft in part because they had traded their former right tackle, Trent Williams, this draft for a late third round pick with New England after he had missed the final third of the year. The idea is McGlinchey could play right tackle now and potentially replace an elder Joe Staley going forward. Looking at his value is odd. It's really hard to say if this pick was quite worth it. For ninth overall, he hasn't quite lived up to that billing, but he's far from a bad player. He's incredible in the run game. He's just a mad pass protector, which at tackle, it's kind of harder to get away with that. In the second round, they would draft wide receiver Dante Pettis, and while I'll get yelled at for saying this because Richie James stands still exist out there, the rest of the draft didn't really yield good results. I'm looking at you, Kyle, specifically. Once again, this draft would be saved by a mid-round pick in linebacker Fred Warner. Um, so the 2018
1: draft, I went to Dallas to watch the draft. I live in Texas, as, as people know. So I drove up from Austin to Dallas <clears throat> to watch it. McGlinchey was not my, my first choice. He was my second, second choice. choice. I had an honor, honor of taking Derwin, Derwin James. James. I, thought I thought they, they would, would take a safety there. Um, Derwin has missed a lot of time due to injury. Mike McGlinchey in hindsight has been what i thought he'd be a serviceable tackle yes he has issues in pass protection but we all knew that coming out of notre dame i don't i don't know why people are super surprised by it um i don't think he's as bad as everyone makes him out to be you know when you have 65 offensive snaps a game and you're bad on three of them doesn't make you a bad right tackle he just unfortunately in his case some of those bad plays come at the worst times um Dante Pettis, round two, didn't like it, really wanted DJ Chark. Um, uh, Fred Warner was a guy I really liked. Um, People were like, no, I don't believe you. I watched a lot of BYU football. If you look at my timeline, I was a big, big, big fan of Zach Wilson, Wilson, so I watched watched a lot of of BYU BYU as is. I did not expect Fred to be what he's become today. I just thought he'd be, you know— top 15, top 20 linebacker in the league. You know, he had a lot of the traits. I thought he needed to put on some size, which he has. Overall, I give that draft a C. You know, there's a lot of misses in there. Pettis, you know, Marcel Harris, Richie James, DJ Reed is no longer on the team. So that, that to me, that's a C draft, especially when you trade up for Dante Pettis, a wide receiver. The trade up for Dante has kind of hurt the Niners um, in the long run where you have to now kind of trade up again to get two more wide receivers and it's just you know th- that's another miss and McGlinchey is you know he's a guy you'll, you're gonna probably resign he'll be a 10-year NFL starter but he's you know in hindsight maybe they should have took Colton Miller he's played much better than he has you know but uh overall that draft wasn't as exciting as I initially thought at the time
0: I'd say a C is about right. You get a great player, a good player, and some bench guys, but nothing more than that really. Racking up blue chip guys like Kittle and Warner is vital and an important part of the process, but it can't all be you, it can't be all you get unless you happen to hit on two maybe in one draft. There's 22 starting spots on each roster and two drafts in and we're looking at about three contributing players, which is why these drafts aren't great despite finding two excellent players like Kittle and Warner. But they do save it from being a bad draft. Anyway, two seasons in, and they've addressed quarterback. They've been swinging and missing at wide receiver with Garcon and Pettis, but hitting on Kittle saves them from not having any weapons at all, and in 2018, that really shows. Kittle by far leads the team in receiving yards with 1,300, while Kendrick Bourne at this point is second on the team in receiving yards with 500. In fact, fullback Kyle Juszczyk is third on the team in receptions, so they haven't fixed that part, but Garoppolo and Kittle save this passing offense and give it a pulse. The staple of the Shanahan offense in a strong run game continues, but it's not in those high investments at running back they made in like fourth-round pick Joe Williams or high-ticket-buy free agent running back Jack McKinnon, but rather undrafted free agent running back Matt Burita and low-buy free agent Alfred Morris, who Shanahan had coached earlier in Washington. So thus far, the offensive improvements have largely just come from Kittle, Garoppolo, and Shanahan's scheme itself, though good tackle play from Stan Staley and McGlinchey helps. Defensively, this unit is still only ranked 28th. Fred Warner is an instant hint, but he's still young. Sherman is still working his way back from an Achilles injury, but DeForest Buckner has entered elite territory by this point. But even with that force in the middle, the pass rush isn't getting home. It's free agent Cassius Marsh and Ronald Blair getting the sacks, not high draft picks Eric Armstead or Solomon Thomas. High draft pick Reuben Foster at this point is hardly playing, and free agent by Malcolm Smith has lost his spot to Warner. The secondary, already stretched thin behind a poor pass rush, isn't performing great either, but decently, certainly just not enough to save the defense. To this point, Lynch's drafts and free agent signings aren't really killing it. The 49ers struggle and regress to about 4-12 and this season, despite a ton of hype. But I think it's fair to say a specific catalyst is at fault here.
1: Yeah, so I drove. I drove from Austin to Kansas City. To catch that game, I drove, mind you. That's a, that's like a nine hour drive. Um, Niners are down; they're getting their butt kicked, and they're you know the Niners kind of making a comeback. We can say they were coming back, or the, the Chiefs let off the gas. But you know there was some excitement. They're like, okay, Jimmy's playing pretty well. The buzz in the stadium is getting a little bit nervous because the Niners were making a comeback, and then he rolls out, kind of dips under a sack, gets to the sideline instead of going out of bounds. He tries to cut back in. Tears the ACL, and then I'm sitting on the Niners sideline, and I'm watching the cart come get him. I'm like, no way! There goes the season. Because not no disrespect to C.J. Beathard or Nick Mullins, I have zero faith in them that they can win more than more than two games two games a season each. Correct, and I, I think I think my quarterback evaluations have been pretty spot on the last five six years. I think I'm learning enough about football to understand that some guys have it and some guys don't. CJ and Nick do not. Um, Jimmy, on the other hand, yes, he's a competent middle-of-the-road starter. You're going to win some games with this guy, and we've, we've seen that happen. Um, he tears his ACL. That's a, that was like the longest nine-hour ride, nine ride home back to Austin because, you know, you're like, man, the season's already over. You know, the Niners are 1-2. and two. You know, they didn't look that great against Detroit uh, the week prior. They lost the Minnesota game because of three interceptions and some really bad turnovers. Um, and then you know it, it just overall the season just you know fell apart after that, and I understand why. When you can't you can't win the games in the NFL with below average quarterback play, it's just not possible unless you have a very very good roster. And the Niners weren't there yet. Yeah, the Niners weren't there yet. The way they did, they have pieces. Absolutely. Were the Niners going to win ten games in two thousand eighteen with Jimmy Garoppolo? Probably not. I had them as a as a seven and nine team. You know this because because you knew they were missing pieces. They still did not have an edge rusher. They still had questions at corner. They had um, you know, uh, Fred Warner as your your rookie linebacker, you know, what's going on with Ruben Foster with his off field stuff? It was just a lot of questions. So um I just wasn't there with them as a team in 2018, but <clears throat> but the minute Jimmy goes out, I was like, it's season's over and we're looking at the draft.
0: Yeah, Hoffy puts it together really nicely. The 49ers were meant to take a strong step up this year. Maybe not be a great team, but at least a good team, just not a bad team, but you lose your starting quarterback week two, and you don't have much hope for the rest of the season, and the 49ers promptly go 4-12. This puts everything back a year. Lynch was aggressive this past free agency, but going in in 2019, you really don't know what to expect. Garoppolo has now started eight games for you over two seasons. The roster was terrible without him, but at the same time, they were winning with him, but now he's coming off a serious injury. So you go into this next offseason really without a clear idea of what you're going to be as a team. 2019. This offseason, John Lynch would not be taking his foot off the gas. Last offseason, he was aggressively seeking talent and free agency, and this year was no different. He wants to fix the holes on the roster that the team had since he's arrived. It starts by moving on from all of his big free agent signings from his inaugural season. Malcolm Smith, Pierre Garçon, Earl Mitchell, all released. Then, when free agent opens, he gives linebacker Quan Alexander the biggest linebacker contract in the history at the time. Now, that term largest contract in history doesn't really carry that significant of weight, or at least is not as much as it seems. This is a product of a continuously rising salary cap, so a very good free agent is likely to break that record every year. However, it does mean you're handing out at least a very aggressive contract. And this, again, was the case. After the failed Reuben Foster pick and the Malcolm Smith signing, Lynch was still trying to find that centerpiece of the defense. Just at the time, it wasn't clear that Fred Warner would be that. Up next, he would trade a future second-round pick for Chiefs edge rusher D. Ford. Remember, the defensive tackle room at this point is loaded, but Eric Armstead alone isn't giving the edge rush much push. Ford is coming off of a great year in Kansas City and is his attempt to solve the issue. Now, going forward, we know the 49ers would take Nick Bosa's second overall, making the trade for Ford seem slightly unnecessary. However, at the time, we still weren't sure if Kyler Murray was going to be choosing football over baseball, or if the team selecting number one overall, the rival Cardinals, would even take him, considering they had just drafted Josh Rosen in the first round the year prior. This would make Bosa the likely first overall pick if they were going to take Murray. The other candidate for the first overall pick, Alabama's defensive tackle, Quinnon Williams, played the position the 49ers were already stacked at. So in the case that things didn't work out perfectly, which it would, Lynch wanted to fix a position when giving the chance. So he swings at a quality player in D. Ford, who they also have to pay as well. He would get five years, $87 million. He then signs another running back, this time Tevin Coleman, two years, $8.5 Not a huge contract, but a decent one, considering that they've already been investing in the running back position a decent amount by this point. They also find cornerback Jason Verrett on a cheap deal, but he would end up being a solid value. I asked Javi for his initial reactions after this very busy free agency period.
1: Initial reaction was excitement, because Ruben Foster had been cut from the team, now you're looking for another linebacker, you take a guy like Quan Alexander, who I thought was Really good. You know, guy plays coverage, guy who plays will linebacker spot. You're moving Fred to Mike, so now you have a guy that's gonna play off of Fred. I thought he would be a great addition. Um and he was, you know, for the time that he was here, he played fairly well. So that, you know, it's not it's not the worst thing. I just think the contract is what kinda hurt the Niners and you know, all in all. Um Trading for D Ford after his monster two thousand eighteen season kind of for me. I liked it, but I also had some, you know, my antennas went up a little bit. Like, why is Andy Reid giving this guy away, you know, for a second round pick? Because then they go take Frank, they go get Frank Clark, who, in my opinion, is a better player than D Ford. Um, so it's just like, okay, what's what's wrong with this guy? And Then I, you know, I do some research, reach out to a few people that I know in Kansas City. You know, they called D Ford a Sunday player, and that's when I got concerned. I was like, okay. We'll see how this works, but this goes back to what we were just talking about. The Niners are chasing their mistakes. Solomon Thomas is not an edge rusher. He's a defensive tackle. He plays three technique. He's not going to play edge. So you you drafted a guy who drafted him drafted a guy who plays out of position. So now you have to go chase that loss or chase that miss by trading a second round pick to get D Ford. Uh, Reuben Foster doesn't pan out. Now you have to overpay for another linebacker. So you know, you're chasing those things. Uh, as far as Tevin Coleman goes, I thought that was a v- great value pick, great value because we saw in the 2019 season how the Niners were just rotating through running backs, just consistently rotating through them, so they were doing really well there. The Jason Verrett one, I was excited about. I knew he had a long injury history, but this was one of those guys who, if you got anything out of him, it was found money. So it wasn't it wasn't a terrible signing there. So I thought they did fairly well. This was, you know, aggressively prudent, as Kyle, as um, John Lynch likes to say but I thought they were chasing their losses from 2017. with.
0: Bringing them to the draft, the Cardinals end up taking Kyler Murray first overall, which is the absolute best case for San Francisco. They get their choice between Bosa and Williams, and considering one played at the strength of a team and the other played at the weakness, it was a no-brainer. Atop of the second, they would take South Carolina wide receiver Debo Samuel, and then double-dipping the next round, going with Baylor's versatile weapon, wide receiver Jalen Hurd. The other important picks, fourth rounder punter Mitch Wishnowski, and fifth round linebacker Dre Greenlaw. This is a good draft. At the moment, the herd pick might be a miss, but Bosa is looking like yet another blue chip guy they can depend on. And Debo is as explosive and dangerous in the open field as they were hoping. Finally, Dre Greenlaw is also a solid player who's filling a solid role for them. Lynch completes my ideal idea of a draft finally in his third attempt with a great player, a very good player, and a role guy. And considering that this draft was only a few years ago, they may even get better. And everything worked out. The 49ers exploded out of the gate. Jimmy G stays healthy and guides the offense to a really good year. Debo Samuel has a quality rookie season, and the 49ers would spring for a midseason trade for wide receiver Emmanuel Sanders, So behind George Kittle, they do find three genuine receiving threats. The rushing attack is incredible, a trio of Raheem Mostert, Matt Burrida, and Tevin Coleman rushes for nearly 2,000 combined yards on a nearly even workload. Nick Bosa was as advertised and was hugely successful as a rookie, joining Armstead and Buckner with some support from Ford and Thomas to give the 49ers an incredibly disruptive pass rush. Fred Warner would continue to ascend and Greenlaw would become an important player throughout the season. The secondary isn't as strong, but Richard Sherman has an all-pro year, locking down the cornerback one spot. And behind solid play from the remainder of the secondary, while getting significant pass rush help, the 49ers defense finishes 8th in the league in scoring, 2nd in the yards, and 3rd in sacks, while the offense finishes 2nd in scoring. So the 49ers have a wildly successful season at 13-3. The NFC's number one seed, three all-pros, and they just clean the NFC playoffs with decisive victories over the Vikings and Packers. This wasn't that random. It just goes to show how volatile the NFL is. Everything came together. The coaching, the health, the upside, and San Francisco was a genuine contender, very close to winning another Super Bowl. Just quick words on that season, I suppose, just from a general point of view.
1: Uh, 2019 season was...
0: Perfect. <laughs>
1: until. That's about to say. Until the seven minute mark of the Super Bowl oh. uh, in the fourth quarter. But when I say perfect, I mean you saw the emergence of, of uh, Fred Warner as an absolute star. You saw guys like Marcel Harris, DJ Reed, Julian Taylor make some really big plays as the 49ers kind of, you know, later round picks uh, from the year prior, 2018. And you go back to. Um, you know, the 17 draft, George Kittle is an absolute monster. DJ Jones has a monster year before he gets hurt. So those two picks are starting to flash. Akella Witherspoon has a pick six to open the season against Tampa. So you're seeing some of these guys and some of the development of these players you know, start to come to fruition. So things are building. And I remember speaking to Adrian Colbert. I live in Texas. Again, Adrian Colbert lives in Round Rock. Me and him met up a couple times out here when he did a little shopping in the Adi- at the Adidas store, He's sponsored by Adidas. We started talking. He was warning me ahead of time. Hey, this defense is special. It is insane what we're doing in camp. I'm like, all right, man. He kept telling me. He kept telling me. (laughs) So, you know, and once the the first game of the season, I'm like, okay. He wasn't lying. Um, Then you see the emergence of Debo Samuel slowly but surely throughout the season. Oh, yeah. He's coming along. He's coming along. They're adding more to his plate. More and more, you know, with Debo. Debo Samuel is more than a running back type of wide receiver. He's a deep threat, you know regardless of how I feel about the quarterback position um, Debo Samuels is an absolute star for the 49ers um, you know you hit with your depth pieces at justin school he had to come in and play a lot of football for Joe Staley who broke his leg in a break in his finger you know we did the interview with Joe Staley Joe Staley talked to us about how tough that season was for him he had a neck injury he had a, like I said he broke his leg had to have surgery on his finger um, so he was out a lot of time uh, Dre Greenlaw. Huge interception in that overnight thriller against the Seahawks, which the Niners ended up losing. But it was a big reason why they're still in that game, for the most part. And then of course the uh, the tackle in the Week 17 game to end the game. You know, they made the game-winning tackle. Um, so you're getting a lot of production out of, out of your selections, and they, they did it. They did they Did what they did. You know, they. I, I think that was the most dominant playoff run I've seen out of a team in a long time.
0: 2020. It's truly a shame how close San Francisco was to winning that Super Bowl, because that loss would only compound over the upcoming years. We get to 2020 and the expectations are a Super Bowl. Why not? I have a ton of 49ers fans on my timeline and they were deeming 2020 the revenge tour. It's very fair for a fan to be excited about their upcoming season, but if you're a San Francisco fan, why would you have any different expectations? This team was so close to winning it all and your most important piece, Kyle Shanahan is still there. Garoppolo hasn't been a great quarterback, but there's optimism he could come back and have a stronger year. The offense wasn't reliant on one person, and the defense had a strength. They wanted to run it back. But the two, but two prior years of aggressive off-seasons catches up to them, and they can't just continue that trend. John Lynch and the front office must make tough decisions this off-season. Specifically, fronting costs earlier now catches up to them. They had traded a future second-round pick for D. Ford, so they don't have that pick, and they would spend a third-round pick in season for Emmanuel Sanders to bolster the offense, but he would end up walking. Joe Staley, coming off several injuries, retires at age 35. Several young guys had to be re-signed, which made free agency moot this year. Lynch signs about 25 total guys in free agency, all of them on cheap, one-year deals, all depth and value signings, most of which don't even make it through camp, no one of significance. It's DeForest Buckner, Eric Armstead, Jimmy Ward, and eventually Emmanuel Sanders who are the big ones to re-sign, but George Kittle also wants his extension. So Sanders would dip to New Orleans, that's fine. They'd re-sign Jimmy Ward three years, $28 million. and after messier negotiations, they would get Kittle's extension done. He becomes the highest paid tight end in the league at five years, $75 million. Knowing they'd have to pay that, it put them in a tough spot with their defensive line. Lynch's first pick, Solomon Thomas, is just a rotational player by this point. Their big move last year, D. Ford, is only on year two of his big deal, but he's now also an injury risk. He played through tendinitis in 2019 and just now got surgery for it. And they're also not quick to give up on Quan Alexander, who's in year two of his big deal as well. So they're essentially left to choose between DeForest Buckner and Eric Armstead, both huge contributors to last season's run, but Buckner is the truly elite player here, but both need to get paid. However, an opportunity arises that Lynch would opt for. He trades Buckner for a first-round pick and re-signs Armstead to five years, $85 million. Buckner, now in Indianapolis, would get four years, $84 million. Buckner got paid more with more guarantees in less time, but it was shockingly not that much more than San Francisco gave Armstead. So I gave Javi the power of hindsight on this one. If he could redo this offseason, what would he do differently?
1: In hindsight and knowing what I know now, I would have let Armstead walk, re-signed Buckner, traded George Kittle, added Tom Brady, added Austin Hooper. And I love George Kittle, don't get me wrong. I don't, you know, I'm not here to 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 bash George Kittle or anything like that. I think George Kittle's an excellent tight end. But at the end of the day, for me, the X factor to this offense is Kyle Shanahan. So if Kyle Shanahan can get Kyle, George Kittle wide open, he's probably going to be able to get... Austin Hooper wide open. When I when I bring up Austin Hooper, I bring up bring him up because he signed for about four million less a year than uh George Kittle. That's the money you could have saved to bring DeForest back Buckner back on his contract. You um you let Armstead go. Yes, you may not get the thirteenth pick, but you're probably getting an early second rounder for Eric Armstead, which is still very valuable. Um do I you know, in hindsight. Do I like having Javon Kinlow? Of course. I think Jovan is going to be a solid prospect. Will he ever match the production of DeForest Buckner? I don't think so. With that, the Niners aren't in the position they are today to take a future quarterback of the future because, you know, you might have been a deep playoff run team. You know? um, but I was not super excited about the offseason going into 2020 uh, with losing DeForest Buckner. So, um, overall, I gave him a C. For that offseason. It just, you know, it was it was tough, man. You lose a Super Bowl, you kinda expect Super Bowl hangover to hang over to hap to happen. And then all the concerns start to happen there once the season starts. So it's just like, Jesus. So yeah.
0: So they choose Armstead, grab a ton of depth, guys, and now they get to their draft with only a handful of picks. With the pick they got from Indianapolis, they'd move one spot down and replace Buckner directly with South Carolina's defensive tackle Javon Kinlaw. With their own pick in the first, they would attack the wide receiver position again, this time with Arizona State's Brandon Ayuk. And with their three late-day picks, they take offensive tackle Colton McKivitz, tight end Charlie Warner, and wide receiver Juan Jennings. It's too early to know anything about any of these guys for certain, but I still wanted to see how Javi felt coming out of this draft.
1: 2020 draft, um, Kinlaw and Ayuk absolutely love the picks. Ayuk was a guy that I had pegged as the Niners' selection at 31. Um, you guys can check my Twitter for that one. There's receipts for that. You can pull that one up. Um, but I I actually, I really, to be quite honest with you, I had my top five was Jefferson, Ayuk, Lamb, Judy, and Ruggs. Like I was reversed from everybody. Because the way I scout, I scout based on where the Niners are picking and how they're going to utilize the player. So I don't care what other teams are doing. I'm scouting for the Niners specifically. I run a Niners podcast. Why would I scout for other teams? You know what I mean? Um, but I also didn't think Ruggs was a fit. I didn't think Judy was a fit. Um, Lamb, absolutely. You know, I, I watch a lot of Oklahoma football. I used to live in Oklahoma. Um, and then Jefferson was a guy, he just he just stands out. Your co-host Zach, him and him and I had you can ask him this, him and I had plenty of uh back and forth about Jefferson and the Niners. He didn't like him. He I hated him. Jefferson so much. <laughs> exactly. Me and him, I was like, bro, what are you not seeing? Um so <laughs> Um, As far as Colt McKivitz goes, I didn't watch a lot of West Virginia football. Just figured it would be another depth piece. Charlie Warner, I understood the need for the blocking tight end, uh, potential Kyle Juszczyk replacement. Um, And Juwan Jennings, kind of a value pick. You know, you kind of see what you have in a guy like that. Didn't even play a snap this year because of a hamstring. Um, So who knows what he'll end up being. But the draft overall, I give him a B. You know because Ayuk is going to be a stud, and I think Kinlaw is going to be an above-average defensive tackle, and he only got better as the season went on, so
0: I give him a B. But Ayuk and Kinlaw aside, the big move came after day two of the day the draft ended. The 49ers would be the one to pull the trigger on Washington's all-pro left tackle Trent Williams, who had held out the entire previous season. The trade sent their fifth pick back and a future third for the tackle, who would have to be paid as well next offseason. But... We get an immediate upgrade as a replacement to their previous tackle, Joe Staley.
1: (laughs) So I knew Joe was going to retire. Um, I kind of knew because Adam Snyder told me. I shouldn't say kind of knew. I knew because Adam Snyder told me. Former teammate of Joe Staley's, he told us in the Saints game that Joe was probably not going to be back next year. He's dealing with a really bad neck issue. And then we had Joe Staley on our podcast, and Joe kind of expressed the same thing, that he had some really bad neck injury stuff um leading up into the Super Bowl and kind of struggled. he struggled in the Super Bowl because of it um so he kind of knew was going to happen getting Trent Williams was was masterful you know giving up a third round pick and a fifth round pick for a guy who is you know top one top two at his position you know you you go into 2020 season thinking wow we had we went from a Hall of Fame left tackle to another Hall of Fame left tackle so who who like who does that, right? You went, you went younger. You had a guy who's probably better than Joe Staley. All due respect to Joe Staley, but Trent Williams is a better left tackle. You know, I don't think, I don't think that's up for debate. So yeah, I was very excited about it. I thought, thought the price was right. I didn't think, they think I didn't think they spent too much to do it. Um, and it was worth it. You needed, you had to do it because because you passed on Tristan Wirfs in round one, so now you have to go do this. So yeah, I was, I was super excited about it. I thought, I thought it was ideal to take him. Um, I'm sorry, trade for him, so that, you know, it just made a ton of sense. What I did get worried about is this offseason, are they going to re-sign him? Would the Chiefs sign him? And it got really close that the Chiefs would sign him. That would have been that would have been massive, massive failure by the 49ers if they, if they let him walk.
0: We agreed how bad it would be not to sign Trent Williams back after spending the draft capital and not drafting his replacement, but they did, so it's all okay. And that would walk us into the 2020 COVID season. Coming off a close Super Bowl loss, you re at most positions, but everything just kind of goes wrong again. San Francisco is the most injured team in the league this year. They already lost Buckner the year before, now they lose Nick Bosa to an ACL tear in week one, and there goes your whole pass rush. Richard Sherman can't really stay healthy, neither can Caroppolo nor Kittle. It's just a rough season for them, and they go 6-10. So we won't really break down or analyze their 2021 offseason because we don't really know how that'll turn out. And when I interviewed Javi, it was before the draft anyway. But it is worth looking into really quick just to see if they continue any of their tendencies. Free agency starts and they re-signed Trent Williams, which was crucial. They also signed center Alex Mack as their only other really bigger signing to a three-year deal. He played with Kyle Shanahan in Atlanta. He's an all-pro caliber player, but he will be 36 this season going into his 13th year. Otherwise, they get Samson Ibukum on a two-year deal and everything else was just depth. A lot of the own-regime signings and picks now start to walk in free agency. That includes Solomon Thomas, Tevin Coleman, Kendrick Bourne, Jared McKinnon, Kellett Witherspoon, C.J. Bethard, all gone. So we get to the draft, and they trade two future first-round picks to move up in the first round and pick quarterback Trey Lance of North Dakota State, and he is expected to be the quarterback of the future. They'd also take guard Aaron Banks out of Notre Dame and running back Trey Sermon from OSU in the top 100 with cornerback Ambry, John, with cornerback Ambry Thomas sorry, uh, just right outside of the top 100. Along with their late picks, we'll see how these guys impact the 2021 season and beyond, but now we can get to the fun part. Let's break down and find the trends and tendencies I've found after looking through each of the off-seasons the Lynch and Shanahan regime have gone through. Let's start by comparing the state of the roster from where it was, when it was inherited, and where it is going forward. The biggest question, quarterback, has been interesting, but, and in air quotes I say, solved. There's no doubt Garoppolo was an upgrade over what they had, so cheaply solving the position for a few years before upgrading to me is a pretty resounding success. Obviously the play of Trey Lance will determine this era pretty definitively, but it's hard to say that the process in acquiring him was poor, even if Jimmy G has been underwhelming the offensive line has more or less stayed the same, which isn't bad. They started with an elder Joe Staley and a younger solid talent on the right side in Trent Brown, while now they have an elder Trent Williams and a solid younger talent in Mike McGlinchey. The interior has been inconsistent, but if Alex Mack has some legs under him still, it'll probably be the best it has ever been in the upcoming year. But his age and some question marks next to him, the interior offensive line has still really stayed the same as well as when they got there. It definitely took some investments, hits, and misses to get there, so it's more of a matter of how they treat this group going forward. Can they improve off it, or are they just treading water? How much time does Williams and Mac really have? Do you resign sign McGlinchey, and if so, for how much? And does the guard position ever improve? It'll be interesting to see how this unit fares during the duration of Lance's rookie contract. It took a lot of investment, but pass-catching weapons have been overhauled. On the surface, it's easy to say that they succeeded, but it took a lot of misses to get here. Debo Samuel, Brandon Ayuk, and George Kittle are a trio I'm very excited to watch going forward, but misses on Pierre Garçon, Dante Pettis, and currently Jalen Hurd required short-term band-aids like Emmanuel Sanders and further use of high picks to acquire Debo and Ayuk. Only Kittle really came easily. So I still credit John Lynch for getting this group to where it is, but it did take all five off-seasons to get to this point. The run game weapons are a lot harder to justify. And that just makes me fear just some for Trey Sermon. The guys that have produced are not the guys that were supposed to. Raheem Mostert and Matt Barita were undrafted free agents, and Mostert was there before Shanahan was. Carlos Hyde was drafted to the 49ers and was in his final year of his rookie contract. When Shanahan arrived, he tried replacing him, couldn't, and then let him walk after a decent year. Those are the guys that produced in this era. I do credit them for paying Kyle Juszczyk, however, who you can argue is just as integral to the scheme and the offense as any other back that they've signed or tried to get. But the guys they brought in to be those Kyle Shanahan running backs, those guys didn't work out. Running back Joe Williams never played, Jerick McKinnon on a $30 million deal, couldn't stay healthy, and ended his three-year career in San Francisco with just 81 carries. You signed Tevin Coleman for $8 million, and you got just about that much out of him. The scheme and the guys who happen to be there are really the ones that set the Fortineters run game over the top, not necessarily the guys they invested in and intended to. Offensively, I think these moves look a lot worse without Shanahan's scheme and play calling, but he is a wizard. That's what he's supposed to do. Only Kittle truly stands out as a great find, but the Trent Williams move also deserves a lot of recognition, replacing one Hall of Fame left tackle with another. That was well done. And on top of that, Ayuk and Diba should also be great contributors going forward. Defensively, they've been interesting. First off, the Saul find was a great one. He's a head coach now for the Jets, so turning the Jaguars' linebacker coach into a successful defensive coordinator that is now getting a head coach opportunity—that was an excellent find. The defensive line is kind of the same as the wide receivers. It's in a good spot now, but not without its misses. Solomon Thomas at third overall and D Ford, and the D Ford trade remained stains on Lynch's record. Then Eric Armstead and DeForest Buckner were already on the team. Nick Bosa, at second overall in 2019, is the only positive addition Lynch himself has found. Kinlaw is kind of interesting, but ultimately it's just too early to call. Plenty of potential there, but he's going to be compared to DeForest Buckner for a while who he is directly replacing. It's hard to say if he'll be able to hold up to that when they could have just re-signed Buckner instead of Armstead, but we need to see how good Kinlaw will become first. The Fred Warner find, however, will be the defensive version of George Kittle, a crucial centerpiece both top two at their position, so there is credit for finding such elite talent in the middle rounds. Trey Greenlaw might be promising too, but they didn't find these guys without going through Malcolm Smith, Reuben Foster, and, Alexander, and Quan Alexander first, all of which were pretty big investments. And in the secondary, I'm not going to lie, this group doesn't look too good going into 2021. Witherspoon was an unfortunate miss, and while Sherman was great, he was about what you expect out of an older signing. I'd still argue definitely he was the right signing at the time, but the inability to find his replacement at the moment looks like it's going to hurt. The Jason Verrett find could be gold on Lynch's resume should he pan out, but he now has a lot more responsibility on the back end. Tartan Ward also were there when uh, this regime got there, and they're still here. We'll see if this group has some sneaky talent that I'm just not seeing yet, or if this was just part of the process that's been left behind. So, in comparing the roster exiting 2016 and going into 2021, there's no doubt there's just more talent here, not much of which was inherited. I am harsh on Lynch, and maybe that's only because I've studied a handful of GMs so far, but on the surface, a lot of the things that worked weren't the deliberate moves. The positions that were fixed took a lot of tries before it worked out. Because they missed several times at wide receiver and linebacker, it didn't allow them to invest as much into the secondary. They'll now be moving forward without a first round pick for the next couple of years, so we'll see if they can continue improving the roster with that disadvantage. So when it comes to the draft, let's get some numbers out there first. His first pick in each draft is a pretty clean split between three defensive players and two offensive players. He continues that trend in top 100 selections overall, with eight players on offense and seven for defense. Positionally, the most he's spent premium picks on so far has been wide receiver, which he's done four times. Pettis, Hurd, Debo, and Ayuk. Next would be defensive line, in which he spent three picks, all of which were high firsts. Solomon Thomas, Nick Bosa, and Javon Kinlaw. Twice he's drafted linebackers high, Reuben Foster and Fred Warner. Twice have been defensive backs, Witherspoon and Tavares Moore. And he actually hasn't spent a top 100 pick on a defensive back since 2018. Though again, Ambry Jones this last year was closest at 102nd. The rest of his top 100 picks he spent exactly once at tackle, quarterback, guard, and running back. He and the front office were clearly raw to begin. Bosa is by far his best hit, and at second overall, I could only give him so much credit for that selection. Guys like Hurd, Pettis, Joe Williams, a punter, there's just a few too many big whiffs in the mid-rounds for me. And guys like Solomon Thomas, Ruben Foster, Mike McGlinchey being so-so, He just doesn't have the greatest track record of drafting up top either. However, it does feel like he's starting to come around. Recently, Debo Samuel, Brandon Ayuk, Javon Kinlaw, a couple huge mid-round picks in Warner and Kittle. He hasn't been straight up bad when drafting. There's enough here supplementing the team. And on top of that, I do like how he uses his positional value with higher picks. I still give him a passing grade. I personally go C- for Lynch's drafting ability. No home run draft classes yet, and a couple of poor ones but he has enough going for him where I give him a below-average grade.
1: I'll give him a C plus because I think I think Bosa is a generational talent. I think Ayuk is going to end up being a top-five wide receiver in the league. I think Javon Kinlaw is going to be a guy who's going to be probably a top-eight, top-ten defensive tackle going forward, because when the way I look at Kinlaw is he's going to be paired next to a guy like Bosa and Armstead for a couple more years here. So you, you're probably going to see a lot more. You're going to see some uptick in his production, a lot more one-on-ones. You're going to see his stack numbers, pressure numbers go up uh, because Boso will see more attention on his side. Um, and they did just add Samson Ekubom um, to the other side to, as a you know more of a speed rusher. So you're going to see some increase in there with him. Um, but I still think they're chasing their misses. So C-plus for me.
0: For me, free agency is harder to defend. A lot of guys he's invested good and money into just haven't produced. The Sherman signing is a bright spot. The Verrett signing should be a great value. And the Juszczyk signing has been pretty crucial. I just wish a fullback wasn't one of his better deals. Pierre Garçon, Malcolm Smith, Weston Richburg, Jarek McKinnon, and Quan Alexander. Just a few too many guys here that overwhelm the good done in free agency. So when it comes to a grade, I give him a D average here.
1: Sherman hit... Verrett is a value. The rest are just, you know, and I think I, I'm going to keep saying I think Rich Burke was the right guy. Just unfortunately, his injuries cost him his time. Um, I, I'm going to go here with a C minus. I'm not going to give him a D, but I understand all your points. You know, it, it just, you know, again, you're chasing that 2017, unfortunately. You know, Quan paying him, Malcolm Smith, you paid him. You have to go get, you know, you have to go draft a Fred Warner, draft a a uh, Dre Greenlaw. You you know, you're chasing those misses. Um, you know, Kilgore hasn't missed a game since he got traded away. You know, maybe they should have kept Kilgore, but I, I understood why they went with the upgrade at center with Richburg. But unfortunately, his injuries caught up to him. So I'll give him a C plus. I mean C minus uh, for the free agency. I'm not a big fan of overpaying for guys that you shouldn't overpay for. But the context of the 2017 offseason. Um, they were just so bad; they had to. But you know, you get production of Sherman, Kyle Uchuck, Richard uh, Richburg, and then the Varett one. I think the Varett one we kind of finally saw come to fruition, and that was a that seems to be a pretty big hit at this point. He had a monster 2020 season. Um, so you know, they've they've had some decent you know guys who you know who had who had some effect on this roster, um, especially Varett for the most
0: part. Cap management, much, much better. To preface, they did get a pretty ideal start here. A lot of general managers, like we saw Terry Fontenot, have to dig their way out of cap hell to be able to later on make moves. When this regime took over, they had a lot of cap space and no one to spend it on, so that helped a lot. However, they've taken that benefit and used it exceptionally, something I touched on with the Garoppolo extension. They front load a lot of contracts for future flexibility, and I love that. Pretty much that entire 17 free agency class and even Quan Alexander had most of their contracts front loaded so they were able to move off them pretty easily when they didn't work out. In terms of talent acquisition, those signings still failed, which is why I'm harsh on them for it. But in terms of keeping cap space available and fluid, the job very well done. Even today, the 49ers aren't near the top in cap space. In fact, I think they're closer to the bottom, but that's because they're aggressive with their available space. Should they want to move on from some of these contracts and make more space, they could very easily do so. So nothing outstanding in this regard but still very very good. I give them a B plus, maybe even an A minus.
1: Yeah, I mean, I would agree. I, I give them a B. <clears throat> and I, I think you know, I am not I'm not like the Prague, Marathe like Humongous fan. I think every team has a Prague, Marathe. I think every team works under the same rules and they utilize as many of the loopholes as they can with contracts and things like that. Um but you know, when there's you know, to get to Jimmy Garoppolo, you know, I was one of those fans. Like, what? How are we going to get here? You know, I think they got really lucky that D Ford was willing to redo his contract. I think they got really lucky that Weston Richburg wanted to redo his contract because before they did, those dead cap numbers were going to be really high. Had they had to cut those guys and or or release them or or trade them or figure out what to do with those guys, so they kind of they kind of lucked out um, with Ford and Richburg being willing. To redo those contracts, which allowed them to which gave them a lot of the 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 free, you know, gave them the space to maneuver this offseason. And another way they lucked out was they had so many injuries in 2020 that these guys didn't hit their incentives. So they ended up having like $11 million in cap credits that got back to them. So that was part of why their cap number shot up, so they were able to maneuver. Had they not gotten those cap credits, we would definitely be looking at Jimmy Garoppolo somewhere else right now, in my opinion. Or they're restructuring his contract, which I don't believe they wanted to do to begin with. Um, so, you know, they they there was a little bit of luck involved in this off season. Um, they they did they they set themselves up well, and I think I think this is where they wanted to be with the Jimmy Garoppolo contract, anyways. I think they wanted to see where they were at after three years of this contract, and here they are. Is he going to be on the team or not? And I don't think he will be. So. Maybe they roll over that money for 2022 and have a whole bunch of money if they go build a roster around a a rookie quarterback.
0: Funny enough, I was finally higher than Javi on an aspect of Lynch's front office. However, he made really good points. I can't really disagree with him. So when it comes to trading, once again, Lynch has been pretty good in this regard. Managing to trade down one spot in the draft twice? Unexplainable. Had Tristan Wirfs been the 49ers target when they moved down one spot with Tampa Bay be a very different story, but my guess is they weren't targeting him. The D Ford trade, overall, isn't very good, but even then using a future second round pick instead of their current one, saved them about 30 spots in premium draft position, essentially turning what would have been a late first into an early third. Otherwise the Sanders trade was probably a good move at the time. no one will argue moving out for Trey Lance. Trent Williams was a good get. He moves all around the draft board up and down. My biggest gripe is he's too often using future picks and deals with that later. Sometimes it works out better than others. Most of the time, he's just sacrificing future draft flexibility. The Buckner trade, we're going to have to wait on. At this point, premier defensive players like Jalen Ramsey and even Jamal Adams have required two firsts, and you can certainly argue that a premier pass rusher is even worth more than a coverage guy. But the 14th overall pick wasn't a bad get. It just kind of depends on how good Javon Kinlaw ends up being. Overall, I'd say he's done pretty well in this area with just a few marks on him. Just not great. I go with a B average.
1: I'm with you. I give him a B, not not an A. It's just it's a B. But the two the two biggest trades, you know, have panned out for this team. Trent Williams and, and Emmanuel Sanders, um, and then the ability to move back twice has been pretty cool um, because trading back from 13 allowed you to go to 14, which gave you the extra pick to come back up to go get Brandon Ayuk in two thousand on uh, the 2020 draft. So that was a plus there. So yeah, I give him a B. I thought he did I thought he's done fairly well with the trades. Um and then of course we just saw the most recent trade um to get to number to get to number three. That's the that's the big one to get to number three. We will that one's gonna make or break your grade, John.
0: <laughs> Overall I am a bit lower on John Lynch. I do still credit him for the moves that ultimately nearly won them a Super Bowl. It's just that those seasons were surrounded by losing years. So yes, bad luck played into that plenty, and a bad starting hand certainly supplemented that as well. I just wish there was a little bit more consistency to the success to prove that these moves are working. But that is the issue with an early evaluation. There is a limited sample size. What happens over these next two to three years will certainly paint a light that's a lot clearer on this front office. They have a good roster, a quarterback on a rookie contract for the next four years, and some cap flexibility to work with. Should they make another Super Bowl run in that time? I'm probably wrong on a lot of my assumptions. So what I have noticed is that John Lynch has a player's or coach's mentality in the front office, which makes sense considering his background and the fact that Kyle Shanahan also has a lot of pull. Remember how Bill O'Brien gave up a bunch of picks to kind of solve now problems, especially when he traded for Laramie Tunsil? The 49ers kind of do that too. John Lynch has traded away the future a lot. D. Ford, Emmanuel Sanders, Trent Williams, Trey Lance, he's given up a lot going forward for the now. And they've worked to varying degrees. I'm not saying the strategy doesn't work. It's just a lot riskier. So when it comes around to John Lynch's full evaluation and who knows how long, we'll see how he does without two firsts over the next two off seasons. If he can, can keep making this team better or if it just slowly devolves and how much Trey Lance will help with that. He's obviously going to be the defining move of this front office. Otherwise he may age well with this job. He started off pretty slow, but the decisions made recently look better, at least without hindsight. This is an early evaluation, so we're gonna have to give it some time, but that's what I've noticed so far. At this moment, I give John Lynch a C minus.
1: Um but yeah I'll give him a B overall. Um he's got he still has to I think be a little more aggressive with stuff and I think this year. I think he finally did it, you know, like I said, screw it, let's going to rip this Band-Aid off and go make this move for a quarterback at pick three. So um, I think he has a B for now. Um, it could be much better had they not had so many injuries. Um, but a B is where he's at, and I think the Niners have done a pretty good job thus far. You know, even even in those losses, in those lost seasons, they've been competitive, so... I think they've have they've created enough depth, and they've created enough trust in the fan base. And I think that's the biggest thing for a lot of fans is John is very um very diplomatic when he speaks to fans, the fan base, when he speaks to press, when he's he's very open. He's not hiding anything. I mean, I'm sure he's hiding things, but he at least explains things in a way to where you feel like, okay, the train is on the right track. We're doing things the right way in San Francisco. Um, so he gets a lot of credit there from the fan base, too, for being so transparent or as transparent as it can be. Um, so I think it's a big part of why his grade is a B
0: for me. And that's all I got for you guys here. I hope to do a more full and in-depth general manager evaluation shortly. The guys I'm going to pick going forward generally have some more years under their belt, so it kind of makes up for easier spotting of tendencies and trends and that stuff. But I want to start here and test out the layout. So thank you again to Javi for joining me and providing the insight he did. I greatly appreciate it. And if you want to hear more great 49ers content, I highly encourage you to go follow him. So uh, I, I appreciate you telling me everything you did and giving me your opinion on everything, man.
1: Not a problem. Yeah, but I appreciate you for thinking of me and having me on.
0: Of course, anytime. Until then, we'll see you guys next time, and good luck in San Francisco.